from the Center for Contemporary South Asia at the Watson Institute at Brown University. This is Sensing the Sacred. I'm Finian Garrity. Welcome to Sensing the Sacred, where we delve into the past and present of religion, politics, and society in South Asia, highlighting the latest academic research through conversations with leading scholars. In the past decade, India has seen the resurgence of Hindu nationalism, a political ideology of Hinduness, expressed by the neo-Sanskrit term Hindutva. Hindutva envisions India, a country where Hindus are the majority, as a rightfully Hindu nation. Hindu nationalists feel threatened by minority groups, especially India's Muslims. Riding this momentum is the current Prime Minister, Narendra Modi, who's fanned the flames of identity politics throughout his career and now governs with the Hindutva worldview, with policies that critics have called anti-Muslim. Recent spikes in Islamophobia and violence against Muslims have been blamed on Modi and his Hindu nationalist supporters. To learn more, I sat down with Ashutosh Varshni, Saul Goldman Professor of International Studies in the Social Sciences and Professor of Political Science at Brown University, where he also directs the Center for Contemporary South Asia. As a political scientist, Ashu has long focused on democracy and violence. His recent work highlights democratic backsliding and the erosion of civil liberties in India. Indeed, the democracy watchdog Freedom House recently downgraded the country's rating from free to partly free. With Indian elections underway, and in a moment when ethnic nationalisms are in the upswing around the world, I wanted to talk with Ashu about Hindutva. I began by asking him how religion has contributed to this nationalist turn. One quick note. We use some acronyms in our conversation, including BJP, the Bharatiya Janata Party. That's the current ruling party, known for its Hindu nationalist platform. I'll post further explanations in the show notes. Here's Ashu. Generally speaking, very few countries, uh, very few democracies today would like to fuse religion with nationalism. Certainly since 1945. Modern democracy has allowed multi-religious affiliations and religious equality among its citizenry. There are some exceptions, very few, but modern democracy uh, does not fuse religion with nationhood. Ethnicity has been fused with nationalism, but when religious communities are turned into ethnic communities, Right, which is the case in India, which is the case in Sri Lanka, and to some extent in Israel, actually, to a substantial extent in Israel. Um, Malaysia also, incidentally. These are some of the exceptions we think of when we think of religious communities turned into ethnic communities and fused into the nation and democratic politics conducted on that basis. Race has coexisted. Ethnicity has coexisted with democracy, has. Hmm? But religious community turned into an ethnic community, it's there in very few places, India being one of them. 
But uh, it's not the religious impulse which is driving Hindu nationalism or which has ever driven Hindu nationalism. It is turning this religiously defined community into an ethnic community. And yet, as your research and writing shows, India's Muslim minority has borne some of the worst impacts of Hindu nationalist policies, violence, discrimination, killings. And so in spite of these protestations that no, it's not about religion, nevertheless, religion and Hinduism are clearly central instruments in the exercise of majoritarian power. So can we drill down on this point? How would you characterize Narendra Modi and Hindutva's use of religion over the past few years? So, uh, first of all, the term Hindutva was born in the 1920s. And Savarkar, the father of the concept himself, was not religious. For him, Hinduness was either a cultural feeling or an ethnic feeling. Um, He was not a religious uh, person. Now, It is true that in the original formulation itself by Savarkar, Hinduness was defined as a a category which included all religions born in India. So Sikhism, Buddhism, Jainism were all, according to that formulation, Hindu. Right? Sikhs didn't like that that kind, they resisted that kind of inclusion. Many of them, not all, many of them resisted what they call this imperial thrust of, of this Hindu formulation. They, call, they thought it, was, it had an imperial thrust in it. And Sikhism was not Hinduism. Hmm? Jains have been at the intersection of Hinduism and, and Jainism. So there, there is that intersectionality there which creates a certain amorphousness, but some Jains would not like to call themselves Hindus. Buddhists similarly, right? But for for, uh, Savarkar, all of these were Hindu. He did not want to include any religion that was not born in India in the umbrella, into the umbrella called Hindu. So that automatically excluded Islam and Christianity and Judaism. The issue became how to deal with Muslims and Christians. And they were definitely not Hindu. And they were also, according to him, divided Indians. He said they had divided love between their fatherland, Pitribhumi, which was India, which is where they were born, and their their holy land, uh, which was Punyabhumi. Punyabhumi, the holy land, was the Middle East for both Christians and Muslims. Therefore, their love for India could not be as undiluted, as intense as that of the Hindus, as that of the Sikhs, as that of the Jains, and as that of the Buddhists. There was no internal conflict in the heart of a Hindu. But there was a lot of internal conflict, he argued, in the heart of a Muslim, and, and a Christian. Now, uh, the point is that uh, you can separate your religious beliefs from your political and national beliefs. This is not simply true of India. It's true of so many countries. There are Christians so, in so many parts of the world whose holy land might be in the Middle East, 
but they're intensely committed to the United States, intensely committed to European nations that they are part of. So this, this conflation of the nation and the religion, the nation and religion, this conflation is, is very peculiar to Hindutva. It is not something that you can easily find in other brands of politics, of religiously inspired nationalist politics, with the clear exception of, uh, in South Asia, of Sri Lanka, with a very clear exception of Sri Lanka, which has identified a certain kind of Buddhism with the Sri Lankan nation. So to hear you just kind of summarize the situation in those terms, it sounds to me like it's very much a kind of essentialist view of religion. There's there's kind of one correct or acceptable Hindu attitude towards religion and nation, and ideally it should be undivided, right? And because of this suspicion of division, uh, Christians and Muslims in India are kind of inherently suspect. I mean, in light of that, why do you think uh, Hindutva has garnered such support in recent years? Why is it on the upswing both domestically and then among Hindus in the global diaspora? One answer to that is uh, strictly within the realm of political science. And that says that exhaustion of pre-existing dominant political alternatives generates space for new narratives, right? Those new narratives don't have to be, don't have to be born uh, recently. They could have been at work for a very long time. So uh, it doesn't have to be, uh, the political rise of Hindutva doesn't have to be viewed as, or and we have certainly no evidence to say that, that India is more Hindu today than before. Right? It's not because of that. Or there is no reason to believe that more than 20 to 25% of India feels not just Hindu, but Hindu nationalist. Right? Believing that Hindus should occupy the, the top tiers of the polity, should become hegemons, and the non-Hindu community should be secondary citizens of the polity, that the dominance of the Hindus should be recognized as, as uh, the most important feature of Indian nationhood. That is uh, driven by a combination of political factors. One is the sheer appeal of Narendra Modi as a charismatic political personality. Hmm? Charisma uh, has often played a role in politics. Um, Mrs. Gandhi was very charismatic. And before her, Nehru was very charismatic. Charisma is a phenomenon in politics that, that we don't fully understand. Why do so many people relate to charismatic politicians? We don't fully understand that. So that's one. The second is the remarkable uh, new welfare schemes that Mr. Modi quite inventively proposed. So the gas cylinders, hmm? the sanitation, Swachh Bharat scheme. Hmm? Uh, these two certainly uh, show up as very prominent in, in determining people's vote for him. This is not a problem that the rich uh, and middle class Indians would have, let's say sanitation. That would certainly appeal to a lot and lots and lots of women who used traditional coal-driven cooking techniques uh, 
and, and that had implications for their health, etc. So modern cooking and modern sanitation have a, a tremendous appeal for those who were deprived of these or didn't have access to these. Right? And then finally, the national security twist in Indian politics arrived with Mr. Modi's decision to send fighter planes to Pakistan. That our data shows as a very important determinant of why people voted for him. Can I stick with this issue of caste and class? Because at first, when I heard you speaking, I thought right away of uh, the sociologist uh, Srinivas, his formulation about Sanskritization, right? This idea that a kind of lower uh, caste groups assimilate Brahminical ideologies and practices, right, as a kind of means of achieving uh, social mobility or improving their situation. And the reason I thought of that is because there's aspects of Hindu nationalism that are very deeply inflected by Brahminical ideologies, right? Uh, Hindu vigilantes have attacked and even lynched Muslims whom they profile as beef eaters and thus enemies of this, of Dharma and this cultural Hindu identity. But as a historian of South Asian religions, I'm conscious of the fact that ahimsa originates as an elite philosophical discourse, you know, championed by Brahmins, right? Are these new constituencies, these Dalit constituencies, for example, on board with these kind of uh, long-running Brahminical positions around values and ideology? So, um, the RSS, which is the mother organization for Hindu nationalism, undoubtedly, has never had a non-upper caste head. It's always been an upper caste person. Now, Mr. Modi himself is uh, from the so-called lower caste. So you have a very peculiar phenomenon that one of the most enthusiastic RSS-inclined Hindu nationalist politician of India, namely Narendra Modi, is from the lower caste. Hmm? And his style is very Brahminical, as you, as you know, he's, he's a vegetarian, but that could be because so much of Gujarat is vegetarian. It's, it's vegetarianism of Gujarat rather than the desire to, to inculcate a Brahminical style. The larger point here is that the uh, lure of Sanskritization is quite real for many lower castes. But many also rebel against that. So the, the BSP kind of politics, Bhajan Samaj Party kind of politics, or the SP kind of politics, the Samajwadi Party kind of politics, is very, very anti-Sanskritization. They don't care about that. Starting with the Dravidian movement in Tamil Nadu, which is, which is now a century old, right? Um, starting with that, but then coming to North India by 1970s and 80s, you have a distinctly anti-Sanskritization model of politics for the lower caste. And its claim is that capturing political power is the way to go up, not imitating um, or aping Brahminical lifestyles. Hmm? Mr. Modi doesn't want to get into this debate. Every time the opposition between lower caste and upper caste presented he actually evades that because in his view, Hindu community has to be a united community. 
and emphasizing caste divisions is going to going to hurt the project of hindu unity as it always has it's time to put caste aside and simply talk about what hindus if united can achieve for all hindus an argument that more people have accepted in recent years but an argument that even today most hindus have not accepted 45% of hindus voted for him in 2019 55% did not in southern india in eastern india this this project is still quite quite deeply unfinished therefore actually bengal uh, elections in the coming weeks bengal elections might turn out to be quite quite important in your recent writing you've been kind of emphasizing these kind of regional political differences and the kind of dynamic the way that they participate in this dynamic or stall the dynamic of democratic backsliding right and we've been talking a lot about politicians so far but but what role have religious leaders played have they tended to bring people together or drive them apart you know have they soothed tensions or inflamed them or what do you think the best study of the role of sadhus and religious leaders in politics is by rajesh pradhan the claim was that sadhus and religious leaders are incapable of political discipline they are capable of religious discipline but not political discipline political discipline bothers them because it requires often suspending religious purity hmm? Uh, often suspending even uh, religious rituals hmm? for the sake of politics for the sake of expanding your social base sometimes and sadhus are are intrinsically incapable of doing something like that certainly for a long time so sadhus enter politics and then they disappear now adityanath is defying that that view uh adityanath has been in politics now for quite some time and adityanath when he came to power in when he was appointed a chief minister of up that was a risky move on the part of modi because adityanath is we thought given that he came from a militant sadhu background a militant religious leader background is unlikely to follow political discipline but so far if anything the the relationship between the two appears to be becoming stronger and stronger and and adityanath is showing no signs of uh, either leaving politics or or developing a certain fatigue right um he seems to be uh, enjoying politics uh, tremendously and uh, you can disagree with his his politics which i do and a lot of people i know uh, also do but if he is able to win next year up perhaps will have changed next year for a very long time to come returning to gujarat which you mentioned this is another region that's relevant to this unfolding narrative even retrospectively one might say and and here i'm thinking about Modi's tenure as chief minister of Gujarat during which he presided over these deadly riots that were part of a cycle of violence between Hindu and Muslim communities and resulted in many lives lost. And I know you've spent a lot of your career thinking about violence in Indian politics. 
So do you see continuities looking back 20 years between Modi's strategy of stoking religious animus in Gujarat and the way he now conducts himself? So in many ways, the Gujarat model that he developed has been brought to Delhi. You can say the following, that he needed to first come to power in order to practice Hindu nationalism, as opposed to use Hindu nationalism in his campaign to come to power. These are two different things. So through governance, anti-corruption themes with which Congress politics and you know was afflicted, right? Uh, he managed to create space for himself when the lynchings began in 2015. That was ideologically for me the turning point in the, in the way Delhi political model started evolving that went away from development and governance, etc. and headed more and incorporated more and more of Hindu nationalist themes. But 2019, it was very clear that it was an ideological Hindu nationalist campaign and this campaign was equal to bringing the Gujarat model to Delhi. But there is one difference. Riots, Hindu-Muslim riots, have gone down in intensity and frequency. There was a riot in Delhi last February, just as Trump was visiting. It was a very nasty riot, more than 50 people killed. About two-thirds of them were Muslim, one-third were Hindu. In my analysis, the first day of the riot was a riot, but the second and third day became pogrom. The riot was transformed into a program. First day, if you look at the deaths, for example, equal number of Hindus and Muslims killed on the first day. Second and third day, it's it's 90% plus or maybe 95% plus Muslims killed. The police just stood by while that was going on, right? And it was luckily over in three days. It didn't reach Gujarat proportions, but it was very Gujarat-like. In the overall casualties and intensity, uh, right, intensity violence, it was smaller than what happened in 2002 Gujarat. But in its rhetoric, it was the same. What has happened is violence in the form of riots is coming down, but violence in the form of everyday egregious behavior, routine egregious behavior and lynchings has gone up. Anti-Muslim lynchings, were not a phenomenon in Indian politics. Have not been. We have no evidence of that. A few here, a few there, but not the systematic campaign that began around cow protection and cattle trade and beef eating around 2015. And so I have analyzed that data. It's coming up in a, as an article soon. There is a clear upward shift in lynchings, its frequency and the deaths caused by it after 2015, right? So the violence, that kind of communal, what we call communal violence in India is transmuting itself into a new form. So in many of, uh, at many moments in this conversation, you've demonstrated how as a political scientist, numbers and data sets are crucial tools in your analytical toolbox. And yet you've also shown that numbers don't always tell the whole story. So for instance, uh, the exceptionalism of India's democracy, maybe being one such example of kind of defying 
the trends predicted by data sets. I'm curious, and this is more just goes to your practice of political science. How do you go about finding the right balance between quantitative and qualitative analyses? Well, I think some questions can be handled quantitatively and some can't be handled quantitatively. I think one has to accept that. So the idea that India is an exceptional democracy is driven by, by all the data sets now which show that India is what we call not on the trend line, is an outlier. At, at that level of income, no democracy has survived for so long. Now, that democracy is backsliding. And seriously so, to the extent that Freedom House yesterday, after many decades, several decades, has downgraded Indian democracy from free to partly free. Democratic backsliding is a concept that is based on an idea which was not driven by, by data sets necessarily, which was driven by a fundamental observation, namely that most democracies after the end of the Cold War in 1990-91 have not been terminated by or undermined by military coups. Military coups are few and far between now. They've been undermined by elected politicians manipulating laws or coming up with laws through their legislative majorities, which are fundamentally anti-democratic. Democrat, for democratic collapse to happen in India, for example, something very important that continues fairly vigorously, even under Prime Minister Modi, has to end, namely elections. Competitive elections, Mr. Modi has not undermined yet. When he loses an election, he accepts his defeat. He has not yet undermined elections. He's not overturned. He, he never played the trump card. Never played the trump card. He may do it in a different way. After a, 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 an opposition government, opposition party, party in opposition in Delhi comes to power in a state and it has a thin majority, he might undermine the government by, by luring the members of that party away to his party or into his party and undermining their majority in legislature. But he hasn't yet overturned any election and not made any claims. If he starts doing that, if he starts doing what Trump tried to do here, then Indian democracy will not only be eroding and backsliding, it will collapse. That is the fundamental distinction. So at this point, India has been sliding, backsliding, and backsliding on civil liberties, freedom of expression, freedom of association, freedom of religious practice, all three under grave threat. That's the civil liberty side of democracy, right? Then there's another side of democracy. The second side is institutional checks on executive, especially judicial checks on executive, which are also weakening. But the third side is purely electoral. Do you have elections or not? And are the elections freely fought or not? The answer to that in India is still yes. And how has the pandemic affected all these dynamics? The pandemic made uh, the executive power greater. The first casualty of the pandemic was the CAA protest. Those who were protesting against the Citizenship Amendment Act, they had gone on for three months and crowds couldn't gather anymore. So they, the CAA protest was basically killed by the pandemic. So it was basically a blessing in disguise 
for BJP governments, uh, and especially Mr. Modi. And once the protests were called off because of the pandemic, it strengthened him tremendously. Now he's being tested by farmers' protests. So let's see where this goes. This is the second big movement to emerge, and it has also gone on now for three months. Uh, so let's see where this goes. It's going to be harder to deal with farmers than it was with uh, CAA. Partly, of course, pen the pandemic is going down. And partly, farmers cannot be easily charged with sedition. This is a fairly interesting moment. I think Mr. Modi is banking on farm protesters exhausting themselves, tiring themselves out and going back home. Can I ask what else you see on the horizon now that the Modi has presided over this attenuation of Indian democracy and the pandemic has strengthened his position? I'm not asking you to predict the future, but I'm wondering as a researcher and a scholar and a public intellectual, where you're looking for clues and signs. So executive uh, dominance of the kind that Mr. Modi has exercised can in principle be checked uh, by four factors. One is the judicial check on executive. Will the judiciary raise its head or bow its head? Which way all of this goes? Let's see. The prediction of most observers of Indian judiciary and scholars says that Indian judiciary today on the whole is bowing down, not standing up. Second check is federalism. If there are 10 to 12 state governments which are not with the BJP and if six or seven of them are from very big or major states, that's a check on executive power of Delhi. That is exactly why the Bengal election is extremely important. The third check is protest. One protest which lasted for three months was knocked out by the pandemic. Another is currently underway. How far it goes, as I said, we don't know. The fourth is, we haven't discussed at all, is international opinion, especially foreign policy of major powers. American foreign policy is absolutely decisive here. It's not that America can change India's domestic politics radically. No, America cannot. Uh, but American foreign policy, if it emphasizes the principle of human rights, can have an effect. The idea of human rights and democracy will compete with what we in international relations call geopolitics. The geopolitics is such that the primary adversary of United States today and of most Western countries today is China. And given that India also has a difficult relationship with China, and India is a large country, and India is geographically contiguous to China, the anti-Chinese geopolitical significance of India might trump the idea of injecting human rights into foreign policy. So the geopolitical case will be even stronger if human rights are preserved and if attack on civil liberties. It may not disappear, the attack is weaker. 
If you pick up a 21-year-old climate activist from, Bengal from Bangalore, bring her to Delhi and charge her with sedition just because she was involved in provision of information about how to help farmers on the net. If on this ground you can charge her with sedition, it is simply not going to work well. To wrap this up, I'm just curious to know, how did you find your calling as a social scientist and a political scientist? Yeah, so my father wanted me to become an IS officer, a bureaucrat, which was the dream of many middle-class parents in North India. So IS officer is the, that's the most powerful civil service in India. An IS officer wields a lot of power. And so I was sent to Allahabad University, which was a, a factory to produce IS officers. And uh, I finished my master's when I was 19 years and nine months old. And I couldn't take the IS exam until 21. So I came to JNU, Jawaharlal Nehru University in Delhi. And I, I, for the first time, understood what research meant. And I fell in love with research. I helplessly fell in love with research, much to the pain and dismay and agony of my father. And I still remember the day I told him I was headed towards MIT for my PhD in political science. Um, he was in very, very deep pain. It um, made our, our, our relationship very difficult, but I was not, I decided I was not going to be an IS officer. I never took the exam. And I headed to MIT to do a PhD and then became an academic after finishing my PhD. That's, that's because at JNU, I fell in love with research and had no desire left inside me to take the exam for the bureaucracy. Well, I really am charmed by this idea of political science, the love story. Ashu, thank you so much for sharing your time with us. It's been a pleasure to talk to you. It's been a pleasure to talk to you. Thank you. This episode of Sensing the Sacred was produced by me, Finian Garrity, with assistance from Alina Coleman. We'll be back soon with a brand new episode. You can subscribe wherever you listen. If you like the show, leave us a rating and review so that others can find us. To learn more about Sensing the Sacred and Watson's other podcasts, visit our website. We'll put a link in the show notes. Finally, I'd like to thank Dan Richards, Stephanie Abbott, and Grace Cardonio for their support in launching this podcast. Talk to you next time.